Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. I'm joined by Jeff Osterman uh, today. And I'm going to tell this story, Jeff. So Jeff has 25 plus years in collegiate uh, athletics coaching. Uh, he's impacted a lot of young athletes. And now he's transitioned to a podcast that he's running with his good friend, uh, Layson. Is it pronounced Layson Perkins? It is. Uh, the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the Court. So Jeff knows this now, but we've been writing a book over the last year called The Everyday Warrior, A No-Hack Practical Approach to Life. I think it's going to resonate well with people. But in the final revisions, we put a quote in the beginning of every uh, chapter. And for the uh, the preface, we uh, ended up changing, making a last-minute change. And the quote is, there's nothing more powerful than a humble person with a warrior spirit who's driven by a bigger purpose. Signed, Jeff Osterman, who I had never met. We found the quote. We loved it. It absolutely resonated with what we wrote about. And no kidding, uh, I would say about one week later, you reached out through MikeSorelli.com and said, hey, I'm Jeff Osterman, uh, 25 years in coaching. Father was a uh, vet. And uh, we said, no freaking way. And that's what brings us uh, here. But Jeff, I mean, 25 years being a coach and mentor to young athletes, not only competing at the, the, the collegiate level, level, I'm sure you have some stories. But before we get into those stories, just a brief background, where you come from and what led you to uh, collegiate athletics. Thanks. It's a privilege to be here and uh, we'll dive into that and we'll tell some good stories. But uh, basically grew up right north of New York City, played played ball my whole life. When it came time for college, um, I could have played at a bad division three, just decided that was enough. And I was going to be a business major and uh, something popped in one day. I figured I could be a coach. I did some camps and uh, a couple people took chances on me and I entered college coaching and made a living and I've gotten to go to some great places, meet some great people. But uh, the end of my coaching life, I wake up, I'm in a Marriott out in Kansas and I have the realization while I'm eating a buffet breakfast, my wife is raising our you know, eighth grade son at the time. And I'm just not a present parent. And we, I felt I just got caught up into chasing my dream. And, and again, we had benefits, but it wasn't worth it. So we moved back. We're northwest of Orlando by about 30 minutes. Her parents are probably 20 minutes south of us. So we're really fortunate. I uh, get to drive my son to and from school. And, uh, you know, I know my time's running out, uh, but I wanted to leave my DNA. So I'm like Fred Flintstone at four o'clock. Uh, I go down the dinosaur tail. I work at a premier prep school, Montverde Academy in the development office. I deal with athletic boosters. But most importantly, I'm a parent. And uh, my buddy Layson Perkins and I decided to start the podcast. And in the beginning, it was coaches, but we pivoted to thought leaders, authors, military, veteran-owned businesses, anyone that can help. My back nine of my career is I just want to leave a legacy, even one person at a time, just trying to help people. We, we often refer to it as the legacy of leadership that one leaves, the, uh, leaves behind. Uh, good friend Rich Devini, who wrote the book Attributes, calls it the irony of leadership. Because when you think about it, the job of a coach, a mentor, a business leader, it doesn't matter, is to work themselves out of a job by making the next generation and those coming behind them that much uh, better. And I know having worked with a lot of coaches, and, and I love that you guys pivoted. You know, there's a fascination in the business world has a fascination with really two industries, one, the military and two coaches. And I think if coaches probably, you know, uh, more probably the football uh, coaches. But I mean, there's there's some coaching greats from the NBA that just are, are amazing. And I actually had it'll come to me. Um, NBA coach, one of the winningest fifth or fifth winningest coach in the NBA. It'll uh, coach Carl on. Uh, my, my previous po podcast, I mean, the nuggets of wisdom these guys have uh, over that, you know, the decades they, they coached 
and the, the failures are are absolutely amazing. Let me let me start by this. What drove you into coaching? I know when you played basketball, was there a coach you always looked up to in, in college basketball or pro basketball that you're like, man, I just want to be like that guy? I loved my high school coach. I don't know if he was technically the best coach. He did football and basketball. But back in the day, I would do anything. I would never question. It's just what drove me. And I... I still can remember some of his talks. And uh, so I didn't want to be like my dad and my brother wearing the suit, coming home every day. I wanted to deal with young kids. I wanted to play a role. And in these days, statistics are off the chart, uh, you know, and I coached women for the most part. But there's so many father figures missing male role models that I really thought there was a need, obviously, basketball. You know, they say great players aren't great coaches. Well, I wasn't a great player, so hopefully I was a little bit better as a coach. But I just saw the crystal ball of it's not so much the X's and O's. You know, you can watch clinics, you can rent movies and coaching, listen. It's really about connecting with young people. And I just found that niche. I think listening was probably and may still be my best skill that I really dive into the person, listen, kind of jointly come up with some goals and come up with a plan to attack them. So my high school coach, Mike O'Donnell, be one. And then uh, I've met great people along the journey. But I just wanted to be involved with young people. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the impact a high school coach had probably not only on you, but, but, you know, hundreds of other young men that drove them on to, uh, to do great things. So I came back from New York and you know this, cause we, we were scheduled for last week. I ended up being in New York and delayed and I ended up, uh, on a United flight home from Newark and I sit down, the guy sits down next to me and we, you know, some simple airplane banner, and then the guy looked familiar. And he's asking me what I did. And I said, I retired military. And he's like, oh, great. And, and it turned out to be uh, uh, Tom Herman, the former uh, University of Texas football coach, amongst other universities. And we started rapping uh, about our philosophies on, on, uh, on leadership and culture building and working with, uh, with, with young leaders, up and coming leaders. And he actually said the same thing. He, uh, he actually had, you know, you know, single family mom, single mom uh, raised him. And every time he had a question about certain things about manhood, she always directed him to his high school football coach. And he said, the guys on the team were his brothers, the coaches were his fathers, and that, you know, without them, he would not be, he especially wouldn't have played collegiate uh, football. He would not be where they, uh, where he is today without those, uh, those mentors in his life. So uh, that's actually, there's, there's a lot of parallels here and a lot of coincidences uh, between you and I. Um, as you you know, a lot of a lot of coaches are transactional, and that's not only in, in collegiate sports or, or pro sports or, or the business uh, setting or the military setting. A lot of coaches are transactional in nature, and I think by by nature of the hierarchy, uh, players will still do what the coaches ask and demand of them. Uh, what do you think sets aside a transactional coach from uh, probably your style? Is it is it just you start with building that authentic, genuine relationship and go from there? Or is that just a work in progress across, uh, across time? What, how does trust work into that equation for you? I think it's the biggest thing. I think transactional may work for a game or, a, you know, a series of downs or, a, you know, a fourth quarter. But I think it's short-term, short-sighted. And, and we were even talking back when I was growing up. Coach said something, you listen. If in, in your world, the military, there was no explaining why. You had a mission or a task and you did it. And now people can disagree and dig in their heels. But in everything, we're having to explain to this generation a little bit of more why we're doing certain things. And I think for, uh, you know, one of the biggest differences coaching guys and girls, I think besides technical stuff, Guys did not trust right away. Girls, they wanted to please you, but they were really, really careful about letting their guard down. So I think in both, the similarity was if you could connect to them, then you had them. I think guys, you had to be careful 
about fixing or correcting in front of their peers and their buddies, where girls, you would kind of take an approach for the team to succeed, I need you to do one, two, and three. And again, I think by connecting with people, learning what makes them tick and what's their goals, you can remind them of that when you want to coach them. And one of my final questions in preseason meetings is, are you going to let me coach you this year? Because I know the secret sauce. I can get you. You showed me your list of goals, but you've got to be open to letting me coach you. And just like in anything, some people you push, some you pull, you've got to figure it out. And I think correction is the biggest thing on how you correct people. Some you can challenge them in front of their peers and you know they're going to stick it up your ass and they're going to show you that they can do it. Others would just, you know, turtle, just go in the shell and they're not going to respond. So I think you really, again, team success first, but you have to connect with the individual. Yeah, the sum of its uh, its parts. You've seen a lot of cultures uh, amongst the various teams you've you've coached. Uh, you've probably seen a lot of different uh, coaching styles. What is that coach that you worked with that just created the ultimate team oriented environment where people were willing to put their needs aside for the uh, let's say the overall good of the team? And, and it's hard. I think a coach is a leader. You know, someone that people will follow. In its simplest terms, that's what a coach is. Coaching to me is getting a group of people to accomplish a goal, hopefully a common goal. But these days, you may not like it. There are individual goals that come into it. If you were to look at sports, say golf, college golf, we want to win the championship, but there's five individual scores. So it's a little bit tougher. You know, coaching men's basketball, guys want their touches, their minutes because they want to get drafted. Yes, we want to win. But I think one of the best examples, uh, Bill Self at Kansas, who's won the conference umpteenth time, they said they will forget, these people out here in Kansas will forget when you were drafted, who picked you, what number your contract, if you don't win the Big 12 conference. Because if you look up there, there's a lot of great players, but they've all won the Big 12 conference. So I think I love reading all types of leadership books, sports, military, authors, and kind of really it, it comes down to motivating people. Again, I can motivate my kids really well. If you're that much better, you probably beat me. But I think we're going to reflect. We're going to get every ounce that we can to make sure if we can't beat you, we're going to compete with you to the nth degree. That's uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm a strong believer that one plus one equals three. If the culture is, uh, is right. Um, what are, what are some of the, the, the core tenets you try to instill in the, the, these young lady leaders uh, at the collegiate level? I mean, a lot of them were not going to continue on to the pro, uh, you know, the WNBA. Um, if anything, after their four, two, three years of you, what did you want them to walk away with that would set them up for success outside of basketball? Yeah, it's funny that uh, you always had the boosters that want to be involved in, hey, coach, how are we going to be this year? And and my answer was, I'll let you know in 20 years when I can see how many CEOs, teachers, coaches, great spouses, parents, you know, that's, again, I would tell kids, and I was very honest in recruiting, and it changed once I became a father. I was a young, slick, used car salesman, and when I had my son, something clicked, and I changed my approach in recruiting to, I'm taking your most precious gift for four years. I'm going to tell you, we're going to win a lot of games. We're going to lose some games. You know, we had UConn in our conference who had won 94 in a row. And, you know, as much as you'd want to say, hey, we're going to win the conference, that was quite a challenge. But I will promise you this. I'm not going to promise you playing time. I'm not going to promise you awards and accolades. I promise that your your daughter's going to walk across that stage, that she's going to be a better person and a better citizen 
and she will have a supportive family. And, you know, and the only thing and people would say, well, coach, why'd you do it? I said, I just like to thank you. And I would remind those parents. I said, hey, in four years, you know what I want? I want to thank you. And that's it. And we would have so many great laughs. But I think the DNA that I left on people is just an unwavering work ethic you know, teaching you how to bounce back when you fail, because you will fail. Everyone's going to fail, especially with Connecticut and some other people, you know, but failing on the court on a Wednesday night doesn't mean you can just skip class and shut it down, you know, Thursday morning, you got to bounce back. And um, yeah, so those are the, the accolades, the human trophies that I really loved. Well, it, it sounds like you were trying to sell the parents on your character, or at least let them know that their children were, uh, well, not children, young uh, teenagers were in, were in good hands. To what degree did you guys recruit for character over skill? I skill hey, skills, skills important. And I'm not saying that you have to have the, the some, some bar or above the bar, the minimum uh, of skill, but to, to what degree was character most important to you and the, uh, the coaches? Yeah, I think it's easy to, we could go to a gym and you and I can pick out, you know, you and I would agree on seven out of the top 10. I might look for different characteristics that I'm fond of, of, you know, no hips and quick feet and big hands and things like that. But once you find who you want to recruit, and I'm sure it's the same in business and in most walks of life, then I want to peel back the onion and learn about them that I want to see you and parents are in the dark about, we don't really care if your team won in summer ball because you play three times a day. We don't really care if you win or lose. Sometimes I'd like to see you lose. I'd like to see, and I'd go to a parking lot. I'd pretend to be on my cell phone and I would watch how they would act because their parents probably told them, Hey, make sure, you know, coaches are here. Make sure you behave. You know, everyone's looking. But when you go to the parking lot, that's when you saw a lot of people just erupt. I think I want to go talk to the school lunch lady. I want to see how they deal with a referee after a terrible call and, and really just figure out what makes them tick. You know, and, and I was never at a place where I was the top of the mountain, a, a Connecticut who could really uh, pay attention to just talent, but they did a really yeah. good job of character. So for us, especially coaching a female sport, you know, you could think, Mike, you had a great practice. The next day you walk in, you had three girls here, two by themselves, five over there, and you have no idea what happened. But, you know, you got to play Louisville in a few days. And uh, so I think character is what a lot of people don't. And, and I could go on about the transfer portal and every sport that people are just chasing talent. And the old Brad Stevens Butler teams, why they won, they had maturity. They had the buy-in from guys and they had that common goal. Yeah. Talent will only get you so far. It's, it's like the... It's like courting a, uh, a man or a woman, depending if you're a man or a woman. See a woman across the bar. The first ingredient is, is attraction. Talent is, is the first, first ingredient for, for, for sports or anything that you do. But then it's the, the, the team factor. Because somebody who's not willing to play as a team or to put their needs aside for the, go, the good of the greater organization, like you said, because they want their points higher. They need their touches. That, that's going to that's gonna poison the culture. That is going to poison the culture. And I see this. I use this in this analogy in baseball all the time. You know, the Yankees are, are usually the highest paid baseball team in the uh, uh, in the uh, MLB. But uh, they 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 don't they aren't always the best team. They hit, they have most of the best talent. But then the San Francisco Giants come along who, again, don't have as great uh, a level of talent uh, of leaders. But, man, it's amazing what they can do as a team is they've got that factor. They've got that culture. Um, it's, it's, it's everything. And I've seen even in the SEAL teams, there were platoons of 18 guys that had better talent, even though they all come from the same talent pool. And then there was a, a, a platoon of lesser talented guys, but just the humility was so, so tangible. And eventually they would overcome the, uh, the, the other platoon. I think it, it's kind of forgotten of the giving of yourself and, 
And it's hard to explain it to young people. I don't know if I would have always got servant leadership, but that's what makes me tick now and what I do. It's, it's really my legacy and it's not my ego quote legacy. It's going to be what they tell my son about me when I'm gone, that the difference that he helped somebody less fortunate or he stuck up and fought the good fight. That to me is my legacy and what's important. But people, they still want the accolades. They want the individual. I think it's a maturity, maybe, hopefully, that people catch on that it, it's more power in we. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think it's so much maturity, man, because you look at pro players and they never shed that, that attitude. And I, I would much rather be on a winning team where I, I maybe I rode the bench initially and I got in in the second quarter than be the star player in a team that's losing. I, it's that's just not it, it's a no brainer. Everyone wants to be part of a winning culture as long as that that culture is healthy. Yeah, but I, that's my opinion. No, I'm a hundred percent. I'm all for the team, and it's it's the memories you with your SEAL teams, me with some of my teams. They're going to remember. They're not remembering you scored 30 points against so-and-so. They're remembering the great win where we came back or we had such a great trip together. And it's hard coaching when you have one superstar and 14 others down here. It's really, really hard to keep people in these days with social media. When you break out for film sessions, it, it's really, really hard where – if I had a choice, I'd rather three or four or five really good pieces instead of one or yeah. two great ones. Yeah. It's, you know, as I think about it, the seals are much like a basketball team. You've got a star player uh, and then, you know, it's, it's a normal, it's a talent distribution. Your best all the way to your worst, no matter what level you play at. Even in the NBA, the Chicago Bulls had the same talent distribution, just much further right on the, uh, the talent uh, sort of chart. But um, not one seal would have lasted more than 10 minutes had they gone on a mission by themselves. They'd be done on, on the targets we, we went across. Um, there was, it was almost like blood in the water. If somebody was so overtly about themselves, it was blood in the water. And it's almost as if the culture had a way of taking care of that individual by themselves, whether, uh, well, let's just say they humbled them. Uh, when, when, when necessary, who, who's that player? And I don't want names, but give me, give me the scenario, that player that, that was very, very good, that knew it and how you dealt with that player to, to, to humble them, or at least put them on the path to, to humility. Yeah. There's a kid still playing in the finals of the WNBA named Courtney Williams. And she was by far the best player in the building, but I would try to, come up with team goals, team challenges that took her individual skills maybe away and kind of came up with more team goals. I would challenge her in a team drill about how much she could do to uplift other people. And, and really, you to break it down to the bottom level, our team wouldn't succeed as good as she is if she didn't have her teammates playing pretty well we weren't going to succeed. So I think she she had a pretty good buy-in, and then you just talk to her as a person. And uh, that's probably the most proud I am hearing the stories, and I have some inside access about the fans in Connecticut, how well she treats them, how much they love them. If it's someone old, a little kid, she really makes time and that was part of it, just becoming the whole person, not just a great pull-up jump shooter. That is, that whole person concept is uh, is powerful, and it's one we write about in the book. It's one I wrote about in, in this book right here. It's it's sort of the basis of how we assessed and select people into the special operations community is not only physically, mentally, spiritually, or you could say emotionally. Um, how often were you looking for well-rounded people, sort of within those 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 pillars? Yeah, I think it's it's huge. Just like in your world, you'll have your best, but if they're not bringing up the rest of the boat, I don't know if they're a great leader. They're a great individual. Yes, we tried to get the best talent, but always in mind knowing we needed a lot of pieces, and it's kind of like a puzzle. If those pieces didn't fit, and we had teams for that season where on paper, wow, we got a lot of talent in this room, 
but the puzzle doesn't fit. It's it's just individuals, it's different agendas, it's outside noise. And it, if they're not picking up each other because everyone's having good days and bad days, I think same thing in a boardroom. Uh, and I think someday my leadership book is in basketball, there's so many skills that relate to business. We just happen to use a scoreboard, but it's recruiting. I'm trying to get the best sales team possible. You know, we have scrimmages and exhibitions. We review tape. We work on fundamentals and culture. All of those things all carry over to a boardroom. But we all know sometimes chemistry, it's hard to describe. There's no secret sauce, but you know when you have it. And it's even more evident when you know you got crap chemistry and you've got to figure out how to get through and manage egos and the seasons. Well, it, it all translates. Anyone who doesn't think that what we did in the military or what you did in collegiate sport doesn't translate to what they do, I, I, I will. This is where I'll stand my ground and say you're, you're wildly wrong. And to say that business doesn't use a scorecard, oh hell yes, they do. Um, you know, one there's QBRs where they're setting uh, the yardstick, the, the the measurements for the previous or the next quarter. KPIs, OKRs, it's absolutely the same thing. Business absolutely uses uh, a, a scoreboard. At the, you know what? I, I always like to say this. At the end of the day, you're selecting athletes into your program from probably multiple different states. In the military, I didn't get to select who my troop chief was. It was like an arranged marriage. And you've got to find a way to, to build some shared adversity between those two pe people. And they've got to make that relationship work amongst much like your five players. They've, they've got to find a way to build relationships. And relationships, in my opinion, don't always mean that they're best friends. It's, it means that they can work together. Uh, one of the things we, we often hear is, is this person a culture fit? And what people are really saying is, do I like this person? When rather they should say, if this, is this person a culture fit? And by that, do I respect them? And do they have values that align with my values? And if they do, whether I like their personality or not, that's fine. That's a me problem. I can absolutely work with them come Monday to, to win whatever basketball games we have that, that week. I think people get that about culture. They completely get that wrong uh, a lot of times. But translation, everything translates. No, I agree. I think I may not like you per se, and we may not hang on a Friday night. But if I know you have my back, I may not like you. But if something ever happens, I'll be the first one there with you. And, and, and that's just real world. And we try to relate sports to the real world. And, you know, if you don't want to be that thumb, you don't want four people going in one direction and the thumb making a left turn. Because just like in sports and trouts, you'll get cut. They're not, unless you're that 1%, they'll make a change, a trade, whatever. And that's, you know, it's sad that some people don't get, sometimes you do have to look in the mirror, you know. And that's one of my big things in trying to teach young people. You got to reflect. You got to pass the mirror test every night that, you know, you did your best. You may not have past everything or gotten perfect grades, but you got to be able to look in the mirror and know you tried, you know, take a, you know, we used to say 24 hours and, and bounce back. The, uh, the reflection piece, we talk about a lot. So I'm huge on this. The, one of the most common threads that I've seen amongst high performers of any industry, regardless of your profession is reflection. The best and highest performers are all always highly self-reflective. Now, I, I remember specifically guys that stayed into the SEAL teams 20 plus years. They had these, there's these green notebooks in the military you can go check out and you can have as many of them as you want. And these guys were always writing in those books after every mission, after every training cycle, everything, every day. And they had volumes of books on their desk from the start of their career to the end of their career. But they all had this process where they were reflecting on a nightly basis, whatever that process was for them, of basically saying, hey, what did I do well? But more importantly, what did I do poorly? And how can I fix that going into tomorrow? I, I, I think journaling is so good for me because I do reflect sometimes too much, but I've got to make sure I just don't want to make the same mistake twice. Like I want to make new mistakes. I'll learn from it. 
but I don't want to look back and go, wow, crap, I just did that. And uh, like basketball, one of the things, and especially coaching females, is people would miss, say, a layup, something easy that you can do. But it would just affect their mindset for so long that I used to give them a rubber band. And I said, once you find yourself going down that slope, just pluck the rubber band. It will snap you physically, hopefully mentally to, you know, the next play mentality. And, you know, I think hard coaching is baseball. So if you make uh, three out of 10, you're in the Hall of Fame. But that also means you're failing seven out of 10 times. And what if it's a slump and it's 14 in a row or 21? How is that mindset of that player, professional, the best? Um, that's where it comes in that, you know, you've got to reflect, you've got to work hard, you've got to look at tape, do extra reps, but you also have to be able to turn that page. Easier said than done, my friend. We all know that. We've all been there. So you're saying your players physically have rubber bands on the court and you'd see them doing that. Right. Uh, yeah. Where, just, where did you uh, pick that up? I don't know, probably in some books, some journal, but just those kids that would really have a hard time. If I threw you a pass for a layup and you missed it, it might not be me messing it up. It was you, but my body language, my demeanor was, you know, you see it in all sports. The, the one person that, you know, throws their hands up in the air and, you know, look at me and the, you know, the vertical pronoun, they're an I person at all times. You know, those people get affected because Mike missed the layup or missed the cutoff that, hey, snap back. You got to move on. Next play mentality. Resiliency is, uh, I think that's something we try to breed in all our kids. I think as parents, sometimes we fail to let our kids fail is we're too overprotective and we, we prevent them maybe from being scenarios where they will, we, we know they will fail. But uh, I'll tell you the one thing I saw, and we knew this because I went back as an instructor, those who lived lives of struggle before they got to buds to seal training already had resiliency built in. So we saw NCAA athletes, some gold medalists, Olympics, uh, Olympian, uh, Olympians, failed the training where maybe one guy was 5'5 five, five and just had always struggled through high school, collegiate athlete or, or, or anything else. Nothing came easy. And they were the ones that end, ended up making it through the training. And you saw them at the very, very end of the pipeline. We always, we always found that people that faced a lot of hardship in life and learned how to pick themselves up by the bootstraps always did extremely well for themselves. Again, uh, in contrast to athletes who things came naturally to and then ended up in, uh, in SEAL training. And I think I used to worry too much about the helicopter parents that were always around hovering. I think the worst now, and my son's 16, so we did the travel circuit and all of that, is the steamroller parents that behind the scenes or in front that they're just plowing the road so their son or daughter will succeed instead of failing or sitting on a bench or flunking a test or whatever it is that they're going to whatever means they can is just steamroll and make an easy path. Well, it, if you don't ever have adversity until you're high school, college, whatever, yeah, I don't, I don't know the studies. You're setting yourself up for a big failure. Late to the game, or prepare yourself to be able uh, to to steamroll that uh, path for the rest of their uh, their lives, which will, which as we know, will be uh, exhausting. You talked about uh, journaling. What what is it? What are those habits, man, that you got on a daily basis? Do you journal on a daily basis? I do. Um, I have a pad right next to my bed, so in the middle of the night, you think of something, you know, and sometimes it's upside downs and scribble. But I have a journal and, and I have a bunch of them on the bookshelf now of just either thoughts or things that I want to accomplish, maybe that I didn't think of because I was so involved with myself or with the sport of just trying to help different people. Like with this podcast of first, it was just about Layson and I and some coaches, but then I was like, we have a little bit of a platform. Let's see how many other people we can help, you know, and if it's one listener at a time, 
that's great. You know, and it's, it's something that uh, I think it was my second or third year in South Florida. I started an angel giving tree, you know, and I had a tiny platform. We had a modest fans, but eventually the thing grew. You would see, quote, elderly people bringing in bikes that are assembled. And one of my last years we had, I think it was like 300 toys. We had eight bikes. We had gift cards. And it just, in my mind, it made a difference for people maybe that weren't as fortunate as me that they woke up Sunday morning, you know, with a bike and a Batman helmet. And so I think more people just need to you might not think it's a big platform and it may not be, but I think listening, a smile, it's, it's hard, you know, and I had great parents, you know, you see the person on the side of the road and I know sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's okay as long as it's safe to talk to somebody, to, to offer to help. Is there anything I can do? Sometimes they just want to talk. And so that's kind of what drives me, you know, right now it's, it's, it's a little bit different. Yes, my hours are shorter, but I think journaling for me is what's next. What can I do next to make a difference? I, I agree with you on the, uh, on the standpoint of hey, even a small platform can do so much good for, for, for many. What was it? Uh, Alexander the Great said, uh, the, the it's you know the actions of the few that dictate uh, for the many um, or the fate for the many. It, I think people need to, to to refocus locally rather than 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 beyond their their immediate communities. And I think social media is to blame for that to a degree. Is people are losing that sense of tribal. Uh, nature or the community around them and just focusing on affecting that. And naturally everyone knows if you create a really good local community, that's, it's, it's like, it, it's going to metastasize and it's going to grow and it's, it's going to, it's, it's going to, to band out. Um, I've got to ask you, do you drive your wife literally crazy by turning on the, this, the bedside uh, table? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. But now the cell phone, if you tap it, it's got a light. I, I, I've probably driven her crazy Mike, way before then, but not to go on a tangent, but with 9-11 being a New Yorker, my dad had worked in those towers numerous times. He was New York Telephone 9X, became Verizon. But what a special, uh, of course, the worst of the worst. But I just share the story about how people really took care of people. It didn't matter what you looked like, what you believed in. People really got down to taking care of each other. And and I'm not some old wise owl, but I didn't know how long it would last. But boy, it, it really was impactful trying to tell, you know, my 16 year old who, who's just going to read about it, that the world really was a different place soon after that, that people cared about each other and looked out for them. I was just in New York, as you know, specifically for 9-11. And I did have time to make it to uh, to Ground Zero, which absolutely the monument is absolutely gorgeous. Um, but you're absolutely right. It should not take a tragedy in what, 2,977 people that passed for us to come together. I'm, I'm forgetting where the quote comes from, but it's basically of, of, uh, of at, at, at the worst times, we are at our best. And regardless of political disputes, you, you're absolutely right. It's amazing how unified our nation became. Uh, flag sales went through the roof. People were enlisting, enlisting, enlisting to, to go bring the fight to, to those that had, uh, made those towers fall. But, um, there is good to be found in bad times. And, and there's a, a great guy, if you ever have him on your podcast, Sebastian Younger wrote a book called Tribe. And he talked about that during the, uh, the Bosnian Serbian, uh, conflict that some of the, uh, you know, sort of encircled towns had to share electricity at certain hours and share food and resources. And years after the fact, a decade, he went back and interviewed him on those times. And some of the people said they wish they could go back because they treated each other with such respect. They were unified. And even though resources were limited and times were hard, they've never felt such a sense of community like they did when they were encircled. That's, that is, that is amazing. I think we, we get entitled, we get comfortable. And when we do, we, we, we miss the big picture. 
Yeah, and it's you nailed it. It shouldn't take something catastrophic to bring us together. But even pandemic, when there was shortages of food, people around, you know, we would ask neighbors, hey, I'm going to the store. If they have chicken, do you want me to get you any? Yeah, let me go get you money. No, I don't care about money. I said, just tell me, you know, as simple as just asking and looking out for people. And, you know, short story, we grew up in New York, right north of the city. And when you had a snow day, right? You were excited. You would have to, before anything, you had to shovel our driveway and our front porch. And then um, before we could go play pond hockey, my mom and dad would say, go across the street and start shoveling the neighbors. And I was like, what? They could hire someone. They could, you know, why? And it was just, that's what we did, that we would do their driveway before we got to play ice hockey, you know, and full circle, my dad towards the end, he lived in that same house and hand to God, we had neighbors that would bring his garbage bale down, would bring his newspapers to the front. And it was like a holy shit moment, like, wow, they're up there smiling because that's what they instilled in us. And it's sad, but people look at you crazy. If I were to go outside and grab my neighbor's garbage pail and start coming up the driveway, they would think I'm crazy. But in Kansas, that's what we did. We, you know, the first time I saw my next door neighbor and he was uh, Air Force uh, and I was like, wow, he brought up two people's garbage pails. And I was like, all right, I love this way of living. And, uh, you know, so that was really impactful but it's sad it, it takes something catastrophic, you know, pandemic or the towers or something like that. If anything, from 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 coaching these uh, these young leaders, what did you learn from them? Yeah. Wow. Good one. Um, I probably didn't realize how fortunate of a life I had. Um, there was one young lady who I had recruited. She was a good talent, really liked her, got to know her. And within a short time, her father had gotten shot in a drive-by. So he was in the hospital and she, they said he was going to make it. She went to a tournament. He didn't make it. So when she came home, her dad was gone. And within I think it was two to three months her grandfather had passed. So she had no male figures really in her life. And I'm thinking she's at that time, 16, 17. And I still had both of my parents alive at the time. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if I was a teenager, if I could really fully understand what she's going through. So I think to be appreciative of what I have and what I was given and to share it. I think, yeah, you can hoard it and you could have the most whatever it is, but okay. What good is it if you can't share it with other people or friends? And, uh, and I think that really left uh, a mark on my soul. Do you, any of your former players still contact you and say, Hey coach, just want to say thanks. Yeah, that that's the best part of coaching, especially in junior college when they were with me for two years. We'd go to university and you'd get the call or the text that said, thanks. It wasn't that hard. You prepared me. I'm, I was, you know, meant to be here. Um, I think that's in a nutshell why I coach the relationships. And and I'm kind of uh, my wife would probably Another reason uh, she would think I'm crazy, but I'm the guy that I'm going to win Powerball next week. I'm just a positive mindset guy that and if I won Powerball, Mike, I'd have the biggest party. I'll invite you, but I'm inviting all my former players and they're going to do impressions because they thought, you know, they're in the back of the bus doing imitations of me. Well, I was in the front of the bus, probably laughing at them. But, you know, the, the sad thing is one of the first gals I recruited, I think it was seven, eight years ago, um, uh, passed from cancer. But there was a few of our old players with her and they called me on the phone 
and she was just in pain. They were, they, you know, called me in and it was so impactful that I could, you know, really just make her laugh at that time. You know, so I've been to weddings, I've been to births, sad, um, you know, I've lost players. We lost one of mine, I think, two weeks ago. She was a successful, beautiful person out in Milwaukee, like, good morning, Milwaukee. And um, she had some mental demons that just, uh, you know, were too tough. And uh, it was just too tough for her. So those are the things. And she and I would talk and text two to three times a year. And I'm thinking, wow, was I too self-consumed? Was I not listening or not reading or, you know, so again, tragedy. So I've made a better effort even in this two weeks to reach out to not just players, but friends and college roommates and people that I haven't touched base and to just say, hey, how you doing? No, really, how you doing? You okay? You need anything you know? You can you can call me. And it's I think if we all check on each other a little bit more, we can get through the bad day at work or not meeting your sales quota or, you know, failing a test or getting dumped by a boyfriend, girlfriend. But I think, again, it leads to that post 9-11. If we can check on people. Yeah, it makes a difference. You know, and on the podcast, I'm learning, obviously, more and more about soldiers transitioning and. You know, so that's something I want to I want to pick up the cross and run with it in whatever way I can. Yeah, the you know, it won my condolences uh, on the loss of uh, of your former uh, athlete. You, you know, you just can't tell. You, you can't tell certain people. They they they. You see them in the morning. They look great. They're they're smiling, and then all of a sudden they take their life that night because they're wearing a veneer. And yeah, we see this heavily in the, the veteran community. And um, I would like to think we're getting better that people feel they can be vulnerable and say, Hey, something's just off here. I'm, I'm not right. And just to ask for help. The, the <laughs> I need help are probably some of the, the three of the most powerful words you will ever hear. And I don't know why it's so hard. No, I'm, I'm going to take that back. The initial days of the Marine Corps, that wasn't a common phrase we used because we were so concerned that it showed weakness when actually I think it's the opposite. It shows such a degree of moral courage. I need help. Um, and when one person sees someone do that, the others around them may be more apt uh, to, to actually ask for help uh, as well. So, again, my condolences on the uh, the loss of your player. No, uh, thank you. And I think, again, it's social media, right, because it's all crap. We look at Instagram, you're having the perfect meal in the perfect sunset and, you know, everything's great. You're skinny, but we don't see the 17 other pictures that you took or the sacrifices you did. It's it's social media is what it is. It's not going to change, but we've got to get past that, you know, and, and I I went back and looked at her social media and everything. And Little every, things. there was no signs, you know? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, behind this door is my wife. And uh, she's waiting for me to finish this podcast because I've got what we call poop patrol. Uh, and I've, I've held it off for a couple of days. Uh, but yeah, I'll never post that. It'll just be me and her smiling at the uh, the next dinner. Nobody, nobody ever... I wish people would post about their failures more often. But the thing is, when you put in, you're going to write a book. When we wrote a book, you know what the worst part about it was? Putting yourself out there. Because these these keyboard, I'm not going to call them uh, warriors, these keyboard uh, cowards now hiding behind anonymity can make these these comments on social media about your book, about you, its character assassination. And, and so I think a lot of people are holding back from, from, from putting themselves out there or admitting their mistakes and all they'd say is just that's going to naturally happen. It's go go look up uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, "Man in the Arena" quote. Disregard the people in the cheap seats. Uh, they always have comments. Uh, all you care about is the people in the arena to your left and right, and if they're picking you up and cheering you on, that's all that uh, all that uh, that matters. I, I do agree with you. Social media is crap. It was, I think, you know, it does have utility of someone living in New York to maybe check in on somebody in California and see how they're doing or communicate. 
but it seems like we've emphasized quantity over quality, particularly with uh, relationships. And I've heard that like, oh, this guy has so, this guy has this many followers and he doesn't follow anyone. Like, how cool is that? I'm like, is it? Is it cool? Because your definition and my definition of cool are, are completely, completely different. It is. And people don't, they get caught up right into followers. But for 1995, I could get a thousand followers before we finish this. You know, it's, it is what it is. There is good for social media. I do see value in it. Um, but it's hard, I think, for young people that are caught up into followers or you got this outfit or did you see those sneakers and, I think it's hard for young people. It's comparison. And comparison is the thief of joy. That's what it's become. Um, you know, where, where did I hear this? Was it Bill Maher? It might have been Bill Maher, uh, his show. I, I'm pretty sure it was. They said they took a poll recently of uh, Chinese kids in school uh, in contrast to American kids. And Chinese kids, one of the number one answers of what they want to be when they grow up is astronauts. And now in the U.S., do you know what it is? Hmm. So to social media influencers. That's the overwhelming majority of kids want, want to be social media uh, influencers. Don't get me wrong. I'm using social media as a tool. And I, and I have a team that run, run my accounts, but we're heavily on LinkedIn. By nature of the leadership consulting, we're heavy on LinkedIn because I do believe that that is the last bastion of social media right now. There's great conversations with leaders in the industry that, that happen there. Um, but I, I'm not a fan of Instagram, Facebook, uh, Tiki Talkie. Or, or Twitter. Um, I, and I steal that from Amy Van Dyken. She calls it uh, Tiki Taki. Amy was a six time gold medalist. Uh, yeah, it, it missed my generation. I use it for business purposes, and that's about it. End of day. Yep, I agree. Yeah. I think LinkedIn is, again, it's probably an older generation that's using it. And we see more value in it in putting a question out there and getting substance versus you posting the perfect dinner at the beach, you know? So we usually end these, Jeff, with, with a number of questions. And uh, first one is hardest decision of your life. For Mike, for me, I was in the middle of my career in South Florida. And I got offered the head coaching job at, uh, at another division one, North Florida. And uh, there were some other reasons but I, I remember, and I didn't have long to think, but I let too much doubt creep in and uh, I didn't bet on myself. And I, I probably, I went back and forth. I think yeah, I was relying on loyalty, which turned out to be a one-way loyalty. Uh, but I think it was really hard. And looking back, I probably should have bet on myself. What, what was your wife saying? Take it. Yeah, she left it up to me. You know, JC was young and uh, there were red flags. But again, at every job, there are red flags. But and, and I'm pretty self-confident on certain things, on most anything, especially basketball and and my abilities in that to recruit the right kids and to win. But I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to get something better. Maybe this isn't. And I started making mountains out of molehills and um, yeah, I didn't have long, but I eventually, uh, passed on it. So that's one I kind of went back and forth on. So this may be the uh, answer to the second uh, question, which is what is your biggest regret? Probably that business life. Yes. Personal life. Um, when my dad was near the end, he's up on Cape Cod between my brother and sister at the time. And, uh, we weren't sure things went really downhill very, very quickly. And um, I wasn't sure of when to get on the plane. He was telling me not yet. And my brother and sister said I had time. And eventually I said, okay, I'm going to just do it tomorrow. You know, screw everybody. And um, so, you know, I got on the flight, but he didn't make it. By the time I landed, I had a text from my brother, you know, so I'm ready to get off the plane, hop in, you know, I had a car service ready to take me, but yeah, so, you know, regret personal, I would say that would be it that I didn't, you know, go up a day or two before. It's amazing how often we hear that story where parents will, will, will tell their, 
they're now adult children to stay. I'm fine. I'm fine. Cause they don't want to disrupt what you have going on. Uh, it's selfless in, in a way when you think about it. Yeah, it really was. My mom was such great, great faith. And I remember towards the end before cancer got her, I was in the hospital room with my dad um, and two Catholic priests when she um, received last rites. And I never, I'm really strong in my faith, but I had never seen someone with so much faith. And I was like, I hope I can get to that point someday because she told the priest she was excited to see Jesus. And I'm like, your body's ridden with cancer. You're in pain. You know, you're leaving your husband and three kids. But she was happy in her faith, right? That's what she lived her life for. And I was like, wow. I mean, it was it was beyond sad. But I was like, I hope I can get to that point in my faith. That is uh, that is sweet on so many levels. And I think there's a lot of people, to include myself, that wish we can get to that level before our time comes. And we actually are heading that direction. Uh, before we do, what are those one to three leadership principles, traits, or virtues that you hold dear to your life that had uh, that have led to the majority of your success, those things that are non-negotiable in your eyes? Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's I, I mentioned it earlier about my legacy, um, you know, my life purpose. And uh, I can tell you it has nothing to do with the wins, the losses, the awards and accolades. I think someday when I get up there, uh, the big guy's going to say, did you do the most with the talent I blessed you with? You know, so for me, it's I want to be the best in everything. And, and it's a growth mindset that everything that makes me tick, I want to be better. I want to be the best friend you've had. I want to be the best short game chipper putter, you know, I want to be everything. I want to be the best, but I believe really in my heart of servant leadership. And it's not so much selfish. The golf might be a little bit selfish because I keep getting my tail whipped, but I just want to help people. And, and it's amazing when you tell people, they ask, so what do you want, you know, for the podcast? What do you want us to be a sponsor? I go, no, I just want to help. I want to have new friends. I want to make a difference in people. And I think I, I, I'm really good for me. My number one thing is empathy. I think it's really important to listen. Like I have a sign somewhere back here, um, which is F-A-K-E, which is faith, family, excellence. Uh, sorry, faith, family, accountability, kindness, empathy, and excellence. And those are some of the traits that I hold dear, that I hope my son will carry on, that he would pass on, that those things are kind of what makes me tick these days. You know, this is uh, twice that you brought up servant leadership, and I want to get your opinion on this because I, I think it's a term that's wildly overused and people sort of take on a uh, uh, sort of apathetic or passive stance as a leader. Uh, does servant leadership, because you just said the word, also mean occasionally that you get to put your boot up some one of your people's, you know what? And, and I'm not talking physically. I'm talking accountability. Servant leadership is also about holding people accountable to help them learn. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think, again, a coach has impact of 15, a football coach, 100, uh, you know, military, different amounts. But I think everybody can be a servant leader. It's to me, simply, it's one person at a time. Are you better after our engagement? It could be listening. It could be a smile. It could be a conversation. I'm still old school that I follow up with a written note. And it's more about checking on people, you know, and sometimes I'll listen to you and I'll say, hey, Mike, can I be honest? Can I, you know, do you, it's like, will you let me coach you? Can I be honest and give you devil's advocate, another point of view. And if we have that trust, I think I value your opinion. That may be the boot, but I do want you to sometimes tough love. People say negative. I think, is, again, New Yorker, we're kind of a little bit more honest and blunt. 
but I think tough love's okay. Like sometimes I got to say things you need to hear or, you know, being married, sometimes you need to listen to things uh, that you maybe don't want to hear. Accountability is how you deal with it. It's how you dish it out uh, and how you you handle yourself in in administering uh, accountability. But I, I am a believer uh, that the highest form of love or compassion is accountability. I mean, think about it with JC, your son, you know, you see him do something wrong. You're quick to come in and say, Hey, why'd you do that? Did you think about the outcomes? Because you just let's say you offended somebody. There was no reason for that. And how, how you handled yourself and holding them accountable because you want them to become a good contributing uh, human being uh, that, again, contributing, being contributing to, to society and that community. But um, I think a lot of leaders, shy away from holding people accountable and hence arguably are not in a lot of ways leaders. Right. I can, do you sell your soul to accomplish one short term goal or are you trying to build towards the big common goal? And, you know, parenting, I related and I remember when he was elementary school and we talked and I said, you know, in school, I want you to do your best. If that's an A, a B, a C, whatever. But the thing I would lose it on is if your teacher told me you weren't kind. I said, don't be one of those that, hey, if you got B's or all C's, but you were really, really kind, I can live with that. I'll support you. We'll figure out a way to try to overcome any weakness. But I just think so many people, again, steamroll towards what their desired result is. I'm just not one of those that I think, yeah, we'll work towards it together. But accountability, a lot of people just forget that those are lessons you got to learn. Otherwise, it's a slippery slope. Well, accountability is also enforcing or teaching people. It's almost like discipline. If you look at the definition of discipline, it's external punishment for said name infraction. It's the same thing. You're trying to teach your kids to not sort of live off external discipline, but develop self-discipline. It's the same thing as accountability, to develop self-accountability, because there's nothing better than when one of your young leaders comes to you and says, hey, Mike wants you to know, I did this, I did it wrong, and here's how I'm going to fix it. There's no conversation to be had other than, hey, good job. So, you know, we often use discipline and accountability. It's actually self-discipline, self-accountability, in my opinion, that we're trying to steer people uh, towards. And ultimately, I judge people on behaviors, not what they say or or the values that they put up on the the wall. Jeff, one one more question. uh, And we've, we've sort of alluded to it. When all is said and done and Jeff Osterman is on his, you know, his last his last few minutes. How are you going to evaluate whether you lived a life of impact and purpose? Again, I've probably said it way too much, but it's it's that legacy of did I impact people enough that maybe they reached an all-time low and I was the person that they called or trusted or I motivated them to become not just settle for good, but become great. And I think, you know, for me, it's an every night check is when I look in the mirror, you know, did did I do the best job I can? Job parenting, job as a spouse, job as an employee, as a leader. You know, so those are the things. If I can keep passing those tests one at a time, uh, I'll be happy. Jeff, that's a great answer. And uh, and I will agree, you know, uh, impact is the greatest currency in life. The listeners have heard me say that before. It's the uh, the truth because you can't take any of this shit behind you with you. So that's all all you're left with. And uh, if you can be the single candle that lights a thousand uh, candles, then uh, you lived a pretty, pretty damn good life. Hey, there is one. Let me and I know this is uh, well, we don't have a script, but if there's any parents listening, there's one poem I used with my kids that I think just incorporates everything you and I, Jeff, have just talked about. It's called the Prayer of Tecumseh. And it is one of the most powerful. Of course, Tecumseh was a a warrior. One of the, but, uh, you know, exemplified a warrior in the fact that he didn't, he understood war was necessary for the protection of the innocent, but he he took no pleasure from engaging in in the act of war. But it's one of the most powerful poems. And I'll tell you what, uh, I will butcher it probably. We will we will uh, write it out within the transcript of this uh, this podcast and put it out uh, for all. But go look it up after this. I think you'll love it. And anyone else who Googles it and looks it up, it is the ultimate uh, sort of lesson, the nightly lesson for uh, for children. 
Jeff, where can people find you and follow you? Because you're, I mean, everything you've said is just, you put out all these, these great nuggets of, of leadership and wisdom from your 25 years. Where can, where can people find more? Um, all the social media is Coach Osterman, C-O-A-C-H-O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N. It's Coach Osterman at Yahoo.com. And the podcast is called It's the Fifth Quarter Conversations Beyond the X's and O's. And then my other entity is FullCourtDreams.com, which basically a lifetime of experience. I wanted to help young people who didn't know all the answers or all the BS that comes from college coaches and help young people get athletic scholarships and be able to get an education. So it's kind of a consulting side hobby that I really like. And, you know, how do you answer a coach, you know, an interest letter, they want to come to camp or just different things that parents know sometimes their child is talented, but they don't know how to go about it. So, um, Really, any of those, and I, uh, I respond to everything I get. I, I bet you do. And, and we finished with it. We'll end with it again. This quote from Jeff Jeff Osherman, which just it explains it all. There's nothing more powerful than a humble person with a warrior spirit who's driven driven by a bigger purpose. Jeff, I can't thank you enough for joining us, and for all those that are listening, thank you for joining the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal Magazine. Men's Journal Magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.